12 years old or so. My mom had a guitar. She would just have it out. Um, and I remember just picking it up and just playing it and trying to mess with it, trying to make something sound good with the least amount of effort possible, <laughs> basically. Um, but it was soon I got into other famous guitarists that I liked to emulate, that I wanted to kind of copy and, and steal ideas from. Uh, one of them is this famous blues musician called Muddy Waters. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. First of all, how great of a name is that? I'm sure he wasn't born with the name Muddy Waters, but let's pretend like he was. Um, also, even though that picture shows Muddy Waters really well, it does have a guy creeping in the background. Though. It looks kind of scary. And I'm just realizing now, now he's going to stare at me. I'll have to switch, swipe the new image in a moment here. Well, Muddy Waters was the, um, whoops, there, here we go, the, um, uh, he, he's not alive anymore. He was basically he was like, kind of like the, uh, one of the fathers of blues guitar um, in like the Mississippi Delta in America. And, but the story of how he got to be so good was that he sold his soul to the devil. It was like kind of the classic, I mean, you hear that from a lot of musicians. In fact, it didn't, have, didn't even begin with Muddy Waters. There's a famous violinist where that same kind of thing happened. But um, this is, of course, something that Muddy, someone who has a name Muddy Waters is going to jump on. It's like, yeah, I sold my soul to the devil. That's a great idea. There's some songs that kind of reference him down at the crossroads selling his soul to the devil. And it kind of all added to his blues mystique that he had. Now, but in truth, of course, it was like a made-up story for him. But in truth, like all of us are kind of tempted to sell off bits of our souls, like whether to the devil or to whoever else. <clears throat> when we're in times of uncertainty, when we're not satisfied with life, in our own kind of spiritual wilderness, as that experience might feel like, we're tempted to sell parts off of who we are to get what we want. Maybe to be a really good blues musician or maybe to get a little bit of money, whatever the thing might be. Now, in this story that, that Rachel just read for us in Matthew 4, uh, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So first of all, that's a weird setup for a story anyway. But that's kind of what's going on here. Now, we don't have the same kind of wilderness here in Manchester. Um, the closest thing, I think, to a wilderness we have in Manchester is the Cornbrook tram stop. Have you guys ever been you know, changing? Tra- it is like, what is going on in that place? It is a barren, broken wilderness. But anyway, if you live near there, I'm sorry. The... Um, <laughs> <laughs> we all have our own kind of spiritual wildernesses, our own kind of like Cornbrook tram stops, our own kind of uh, things that we walk through. When, you know, when, we're, when we're feeling low, when we're feeling dry, we're just kind of feeling worn out. I, you guys all know what I'm talking about. Well, just like Jesus, in our wilderness, we're tempted to sell parts of our soul off. We're tempted by the same things that Jesus is tempted by here, in self-reliance, by pride, by power. And we can use those things to get what we want to remove ourselves from the feelings of being in the wilderness, because it doesn't feel good to be in the wilderness. Nobody wants to hang out in Cornbrook. Nobody wants to like, go in a desert and not eat for 40 days and 40 nights and have that be your whole life. It doesn't feel good. But what happens when we give in to selling parts of ourselves off? When we do that, we're left with less. We sell our parts off to, to try and like, get more, but actually what ends up is we end up even more empty than we were before. Less of ourselves, less of God, less to offer to other people. Now, we will go through different kinds of wilderness in our lives, but we're never going to do that alone. Because Jesus never leaves our life to ourselves. Jesus goes through his wilderness so we can go through ours. And that's really good news because we will all go through a wilderness and multiple versions of them. And not just, Jesus doesn't allow us to just go through it, but he allows us um, so that we can go through it well. It's one thing to walk through a wilderness. It's another thing to walk through it well. Jesus leads the way out because of that, we can follow him regardless of how low we are. And he does that not for us to sell our souls, not for us to like, for him to steal parts of us, 
but by giving us, by filling us, by giving us life. And in the end, we don't end up with less. Actually, we end up with more, which is a weird thing to think about. Going through a barren, broken place and to end up with more at the end of it. That doesn't make any sense. And in the end, we don't end up with less. We do get more, more of ourselves, more of God, and we have more to offer other people. But before we really get into this story, um, let's chat about two things briefly here. The first is the wilderness itself. The wilderness itself is a disorientating place. It's uh, up, up, upside down feels right side up and vice versa. Even God's words here, you being used by the devil, even that's being contorted, which is a little side note that shows you how important it is to know the context of the Bible when you're talking about it. But in the wilderness, there's a lack of satisfaction. There's a lack of fulfillment. This is spiritually true and physically true. Jesus is actually hungry. He's actually thirsty. <clears throat> He has real needs, just as we do when we go through the wilderness. But there was also this other thing going on that um, we may not have kind of immediately come to mind when we read a story like this. Uh, Jewish thought of the day believed that the wilderness preceded a new beginning with, with, with God. So if you went through something like this, there was going to be something on the other end. If you went through this well, there's going to be some kind of new revelation of God at the end of it. Uh, this is what we see in the Old Testament with Israel going through their wilderness. That's what you see with the Old Testament prophets when they go through kind of versions of this. The wilderness precedes something new. So if you're in a wilderness now, I know it doesn't feel great, but if you're in one now, if you're not, just wait because you will be, but if you're in one now, just know that God's at work. You may not even believe in him, but that's still true because that's how God works. He's at work in your wilderness planting seeds of hope. See, we're all going to go through the wilderness. Not all of us are going to go through it well. So let's not miss out on the potential of hope, especially when we need it the most. So it's that thing to notice, the wilderness thing, of, of, and that would have been very plain to the people who, were, who would have read this of the day. A second thing to notice here, and I, we don't just don't want to assume that um, everyone is, uh, sees this as normal, there's the devil, there's Satan as a being. Now you might laugh at the idea of believing in Satan, because it's not really a sophisticated belief. Who, at a cocktail party or you know, at the pub, you're like, you know what's very interesting is Satan, and you start talking about him like he's a person. Like People will be like, that's really weird, we're not going to talk about it. Oh, it's okay. It's meant to be black. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> See? There we go. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> Cause a, a stir. The, um, <laughs> there's a compl- yeah, there's a wilderness behind me. There's nothing there. It's completely barren. Surely there's something wrong with it. Let's fix it. See what happens when we want to fix it ourselves. We're pulling out plugs, all sorts of things. Nothing caught fire. We're all right. So, so let's just bring it back to um, the very first verse. Uh, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit and will just be tempted by the devil. So the devil exists. Now, you may not believe that. You might, that's, not a very, that's not your typical liberal, secular belief, that there is a devil that's out there that exists. That's for naive, unsophisticated people, right? The fundamentalist people, they, they believe in that. Well, what we see here is Satan does not come with a pitchfork and horns and like a tight red leather suit. But he's a spiritual being that's always at work for darkness to overcome light. And actually, what naive to be naive is is to believe that he doesn't exist. So we want to like actually bring reality into our world, and reality is there is a power of darkness that's out there. And in the wilderness, Satan comes with words that we want to hear when we want to hear them. This happens all the time. He's opportunistic. 
His whole end goal, the same thing he does for Jesus, the same thing towards us, to separate the Son from the Father. That comes right after the strongest declarations of how connected the Father and the Son are. We just had like the, the pinnacle of, of this Trinitarian love. We talked about that last week of God delighting in us because he delights in Jesus, all this kind of stuff. And then what happens next is now there's a testing of that. So Satan's like, is this actually really true? We're going to see, is, is what God said actually really true? And the same thing is actually true for us when Satan and, and all the powers of darkness come against us. The whole goal is to separate us from God and therefore separate us from his love. Now, in order for, there we go, for us to not be separated from God, let's learn from this story today because I don't want to be separated from him. I want to like bask in the love that God has for me. So let's learn how our wilderness can be a place of hope as we follow Jesus through it. And when we're in the wilderness, like Jesus, there are three big temptations. Those are going to be our three points. The same temptations of Jesus are our main points today. There's self-reliance, there's pride, and there's power. They all place ourselves first over and above God. And as we go, if you have any questions, even if you're like, that seems like kind of a dumb question, maybe I shouldn't ask, that's completely fine because 99% of the questions are like dumb questions. I'm putting air quotes going on. Um, so if you go to redeemermcr.com slash ask, it's an anonymous way to put in questions, and we'll talk about it right after the sermon. But let's get to this first point, self-reliance. In the wilderness, all of us are tempted to be self-reliant. And that's what Satan is doing with Jesus when he comes to speak to him in verse 3. If, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Prove yourself if this is really who you are. God just said this is who you are. He said he was delighted this is who you are. If that's really true, prove yourself in this way that I want you to do it. This is also how Satan talks to Adam. In, in chapter 3 of Genesis and Eve in the garden. He's sowing these seeds of doubt. If God, does God actually love you? Turning stones into bread now is not a temptation for me, but it is a temptation for Jesus because he, he can actually do that because he's the son of God. What's going on here is elevating the gifts of God beyond God himself. It's not bad for Jesus to eat. It's not bad for Jesus to make a miracle. It's not bad for him to create food out of nothing. In fact, he will do that multiple times in Matthew. He's going to feed loads of people, and it'll be in a very kind of miraculous way. It's not the what that's the problem here. It's the why and the how. Why would Jesus do that? How is he going to do that? See, Jesus is completely comfortable in the Father's love. He's completely comfortable in the Father's delight. He doesn't need to prove himself to anyone. That's the why. So if he was to do it, and there's, oh, no, no, I am, and I'll show you, that shows he's actually not actually very comfortable in God's love. Because if you're comfortable there, you don't need to prove yourself to anybody. But also let's look at the how. Because Jesus was led by who? Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. To where? Into the wilderness. For what reason? To be tempted. So if Jesus all of a sudden was going to shortcut all those temptations by undoing it all, that would undo the whole thing that the Holy Spirit had him to be there in the first place for. All this is wrapped up around this idea of self-reliance. You don't need to rely on the Father's delight or the Spirit's mission. You only need to rely on yourself. Go ahead, prove it. And there's many ways our culture has made it to prove it. Jesus replies by saying there is a priority he lives by. God's word, even over bread. Now, I love food, bread in particular. That would be a very difficult thing for me to say, <laughs> especially when I've not been eating for a while. Jesus' priorities mean he has a felt need. He's very hungry, but that felt need doesn't overcome his desire to live a life in alignment with the Father. We have all sorts of felt needs that are never going to be fulfilled in the way that we want them to be. Jesus had to live by the word, though. He knew it. <clears throat> Relying on ourselves, of course, is a very high value for us. That's, that's, I mean, is there any other way to live but to kind of do it your own way? 
Uh, that Sinatra song we love to sing, oh, I did it my way because we're the best and we figured it out. When we go through something difficult and not tell somebody else, has that ever happened? Have you ever heard of a story where someone's, oh, I would have told you, didn't want to burden you, or I would have told you, just didn't want to, I mean, that happens all the time. And maybe we don't want to burden the other person. There may, might be a legitimacy to that, but I think that's kind of made up mostly. I hear that all the time as a pastor when I find something that's gone on in someone's life. And it was like maybe a year ago, six months ago, maybe even last week. I'm like, oh, I, I didn't want to tell you. I didn't want to burden you. I'm like, what am I even here for? Like, do you have friends? What, what are your friends even there for? The whole point is to be burdened by that. You were supposed to share it all together. So maybe it's kind of true that you don't want to burden somebody. But what's really true is we want to rely on ourselves, or at least be seen as people who can rely on ourselves. I want to be someone who can handle it. I do, and so do the rest of us. It's no surprise that at this moment of us so desperate to prove ourselves, superhero films are so popular. I mean, also CGI and computer technology is caught up with like, the ideas of what things can do. Well, we can do anything with computers. Why are, we making, why are we so obsessed with superheroes? Like, Why is that the thing we want to hear and we want to see? Part of the reason, I think, is that we see ourselves projected on that screen. We all have that little inner kid. I'm like, ah, you know, really, I'm kind of like Batman. I mean... Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll work out a little bit, but I'm kind of like Batman. That's kind of like who I am, or I'm Black Panther, whatever the thing is. But those are all fictional stories. We love them, and they're great for fiction. That's great. But as in any story that we try and disper- desperately cling to, telling ourselves we're good enough and we must keep it all together, strength is living in the real world, not the fictional world. The screen is a fictional world. Telling ourselves we can handle it without anybody else, that's a fictional world. Now, self-denial, which is what uh, the Bible does talk about, doesn't really make much sense in a world obsessed with self-reliance. That doesn't make any sense, really. Indeed, self-denial is actually seen not as like neutral, but as unhealthy, as repressive, as barbaric, as harmful. I want to have sex with someone that I love and the way that I want to. And I'm not married to that person, but what, why can't I do that? Saying I can't do that is actually repressive and it's harmful for me. That's the kind of message that we hear. Of course, the commands of following Jesus are placed on those who follow Jesus, and we don't put those commands on on other people. But Jesus himself teaches us the way that we're supposed to walk into. We don't figure it out ourselves. We don't get to do that. As Christians, which actually means little Christs, it was a derogatory term to the original Christians, and now we own it. As little Christs, there are times where we will be asked to choose between self-denial and self-reliance. Now, our whole entire lives is not going to be, you know, in the wilderness, never eating, maybe eat a little bread, but only if it's really crusty and kind of moldy. It's not going to be like this horrible self-denial kind of life. None of us actually really live that life in the West. But there will be times where we'll have to choose between either. And self-denial is a protest to that fiction of the sovereign self. I can do it all myself. It says, self-denial says, I don't know everything. I'm not enough by myself. There is someone bigger than me, and that person loves me very much, and I have to surrender to him. Now, how in the world can we live that way? Because that's really difficult. Have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever tried to live the Christian life? Have you tried? It's difficult. It's kind of hard. But the same answer that Jesus has, though, is the same answer we have. How do we do that? Well, by the word. If we're not in the Bible, there's no way we have any hope of doing anything, living in this way at all. All the words in here, not just like this little section or this little sermon, all the words in here, not just the ones we like and not just the ones that are easy to believe. There is so much in here. We're nourished by it. To neglect this is to live a malnourished life. And Jesus does not want us to be empty. He wants us to be full of him, even when we're in the wilderness. 
maybe as a bit of a side note, um, just in general, just to add one thing, our hunger is important. It's important to have hunger. Our hunger in this world leads to a deeper understanding of God's providence. If you never live with hungry parts of your life, and I'm not just talking about food here, right? If you, only know, if you never live with hungry, with hungry parts of your life, never longing, you're always satisfying yourself as quickly as you can, you will miss out on knowing just how much God can satisfy us. And he satisfies in better and healthier ways we make up on our own. And this is one reason for you to fast when you pray, to know that hunger viscerally, that, that's a reason for fasting, is to know how kind of small and dependent and weak that we are, to feel how much we are the creature and not really the creator, that we aren't gods, so we like to play like we are, but you skip a meal and all of a sudden everything's in disorder and chaos. It's really good to be confronted with that reality. And God will always meet us, not with complete fulfillment, but he will always meet us with satisfaction. So that's self-reliance. The next thing that um, Satan tempts Jesus with, he ratchets up the environment for this next temptation. He takes Jesus to the top of this, the highest point in Jerusalem, on top of the temple. And uh, the next temptation that we come across here is pride. In the wilderness, we are tempted with pride. Satan tells Jesus, if you are who the Father says you are, throw yourself off. Command uh, angels to save you. Then everyone's going to see you for who you are. Everyone will, be, will applaud you and they'll say, this is amazing. See, pride is all about glory. For us, celebrity status in our own little circles. It's like this really small form of manipulation. It's an attempt to test the literal truth of God. Like, oh, you say you love me. Well, how, can I get, how can't I get this? How can't I be that? Here for Jesus, Satan is asking him to deliberately put himself in a place of trouble to force God to save him. It's testing God. Now, Jesus will hear similar words later on in Matthew when he's on the cross. People will be kind of mocking him, saying, oh, if you're the son of God, just come down off that cross. Why don't you just ask angels to help you come down off the cross? Sure, you're the son of God. You can do that. See, our world flows with this theology of glory, that everything runs towards the immediate, towards the successful, to whatever will give us the most good with the least amount of work. The Christian life, though, flows in the opposite direction. It's the theology of the cross, not a theology of glory. There's a difference and there's a discontinuity between how the world tells us to live and what Jesus says and, and lives out even in these verses that we find here. Jesus tells the devil, we don't test God. Now you might be like, yeah, but Satan's never actually come to me, said, oh, if you think you're so great, why don't you do this? And I, I don't really think I test God, but I think we do a lot in like kind of sm much smaller ways, of course, because we're smaller beings. I don't think we probably think maybe of how often we do test him. So how are we kind of tempted with this kind of temptation? Well, it can be in how we treat God. We can resort to manipulation or try and act in a way that we think obligates him to respond. Like, God, I've done this for you. I've done all this for you. Now you have to do something for me. I've served you so much. Now you need to come through for me. I'm good, so I deserve good. That's a theology of glory. That's also known as karma. That's not a Christian belief. That's something very different. We can act as if God exists for us first. How is God going to fulfill me? And then maybe I might do something. Instead of actually the reality is the other way around. We exist for him. I'll follow him. And we get actually everything out of it. Or maybe you might, oh, well, unless I get something out of it, I'll kind of be in, but you know, only halfway until I really get the thing that I'm, I'm searching for. I think one way we also test him, which is not really exactly what might be going on here, but it's definitely a way that we test him, is in our search for Revelation. Revelation is like where our ideas come from, where our thoughts come from, where we kind of know how to live, uh, where life comes from. God has made it clear 
throughout the Bible, many, 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 many times, and we don't have time to go to any of those parts today, and we can talk about that later if, if you're interested. God's made it clear that it's the context of his church and through the Bible that we get the right ideas about God, ourselves, and the world. We think that the church or the Bible, those are maybe like good options, but they're just that, right? They're, they're options. And coming to church is an option. And like reading my Bible is like an option, let alone following what it says. Like maybe that's just like a good option, but just an option. It's not really the way. Or I can read the Bible by myself and it just be me and Jesus. And like, surely that's good enough, right? But being present with others is more than a nice option. It's how God reveals himself to us. And it's also the only way that you can be something more than a consumer. So do we hunger for the word in the same way that Jesus understands it connects with bread? Like it just, it, it feeds him. Do we organize parts of our day around that? Do we organize our thoughts and our life around it? I think we're probably all a little bit naive when it comes to how much we assume and submit to what our culture tells us to do. In seeking revelation outside God, we do put him to the test of being all-knowing, of being all-good, of being present with us. We say, God, you're actually not all-knowing. You're really not that great because I can find something better over here. So thanks for that, and I might come to that if I need it, but I'm going to try this over here for a bit. And we may not be present with, with God's people because we feel like we don't really need to be. Now, I get it. When you've had a tiring day or a tiring week, the thing that you need might be to like chill out in front of the, the TV or something and just kind of check out. But actually, what your life needs, now that happens from time to time for sure, but what your life actually needs is to be around other people who are going to talk, the good, talk about the goodness of God, talk about the knowledge of God, be in the presence of God as, as we come to his word in the context of his people. So really, I know sometimes it might be difficult, but getting over that initial kind of boundary of going to that missional community meeting, especially if you have kids, I, that, I mean, it's difficult, right? It's, not, it's never easy. That coffee that you wanted to have with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, that's like, oh, yeah, I just need to text them and kind of just take the, like the plunge and do it. Come along on Sunday. You won't find life outside of it. And if you're in the wilderness, you'll be left with less unless you press in. And there's no other way to press in except through his church. That's how God tells us. Because here is where God works, in these relationships. And you're like, these people? Yeah, actually, even these people. <laughs> this guy? Oh, sorry. But you need it desperately. So let's not be prideful enough to think that we don't need it, because we really do need it. So when we're in the wilderness, we're tempted by things that will rob us of who we are, rob us of God's love. So the self-reliance, you talked about pride, but there's a last one here, and it's power. Now Satan once again ratchets up the temptation. So he took him from, he's just in the wilderness, he went to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. Now he takes him in this kind of vision to this, to be able to see like all the kingdoms of the world, some kind of like, like I don't know, viewing the world from outside the world kind of thing. And in the wilderness, we're tempted with power. Satan is seeking to give Jesus exactly what he came to earth for. It's not like Jesus isn't going to get this. Jesus will. But this is like what the devil is tempting him with. He came to earth for all that's due to him, for all to see him and to bow down. But it's not the end result that's the problem, just like in the first temptation. It's how we get there. See, power can aim for a good thing, but sometimes ends up getting messed up along the way. I don't know any politicians who are like that. So anyway, well, what's the wrong way here? We're not going to get into politics. What's the wrong way here? Um, well, it's, it's a shortcut. This is what Jesus came for, and this is what he's going to get, but not without going through suffering, not without going through the cross. Satan is like, you don't have to go through the cross. Actually, you can just do it now if you just worship me. Are we tempted? Uh, and we are tempted by power in the same way. Because what does power give us? Power gives us the ability to avoid pain. 
It gives us comfort. The most powerful people are the most comfortable people. We want comfort, and those in power are comfortable. But interesting to note is how Jesus responds. He says, worship God and, and him only. Satan says, worship me, I'll give you what you want. Even I'll give you what you deserve, Jesus. Even better than being like an awesome blues guitarist, you're going to have like all the kingdoms of the world. But there are two disconnects for Jesus here. The first is obvious. Jesus is connected to the Father and says, I can't worship you. I, I worship the Father. And that one's kind of obvious to us. Like that, that doesn't take like a big, a big jump there. But there's another disconnect here for Jesus is misusing his power that Jesus has to avoid the suffering that he's called to. Whenever we use the power that God gives for us to avoid those difficult things that he does call us to, we aren't worshiping God anymore. We're worshiping ourselves. Worshiping anything else other than God, anyone else other than God is worshiping the devil and ourselves. Now, I get it. It's human. We all want to avoid difficulty. We have all sorts of biological reasons to avoid difficulty. I was thinking about films and uh, TV series recently in the past decade about like the multiverse, about the other multi, multiple universes, universes existing around the same time, depending on our choices to create new ones. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Has anyone seen that? Oh my gosh, it's mind-blowing. It's really good. I don't know if I can recommend it, though. It's great. Watch it. I can't recommend it. Um, uh, superhero films do a lot of this, right? Doctor Strange, Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, the newer Star Trek films are all about like these other possible universes that exist. The new War of the Worlds TV series, which is actually really good. Um, series, well, I, I won't give anything away. You know, I don't think it's any coincidence that films or TV about alternate universes are popular right now when it's really difficult for us to live in ours. Wouldn't it be great if there's another universe out there where everything works out okay? That's, um, that's said by almost every single character in those films. Oh, but I know, you know, in some other universe, you and I got together in the end and we had that happy. Like, we all have that fantasy life, don't we? We want to escape the uncertainty we live in. We want to flee the difficulty. That's really good for entertainment. I'm all for that. But it's tragic for our lives. And we all have power. You may not think you do, but I promise you, you do. The money you have, the time you have, if you have a house at all to live in, if you have relationships, if you have hobbies, it's very easy for us to leverage these things to deliver us comfort so we don't have to think of the difficult places that God's calling us to. So how in your relationships are you bringing Jesus's light to bear in conversations? And that could get real awkward real quick. And we laugh maybe because we all feel it and we're anxious about it. In your job, you might have power to use someone else's idea and pass it off on your own. What about our environment? If there's ever a real-life living illustration of our culture's issue with power, it's the environment. We're obsessed with consuming things, and it's destroying the planet. I mean, that's not a theory anymore. It's just a fact. And people might disagree on the level of how it's destroying it, but let's just say it's not, we're not doing great things for the planet. But for a culture that postures itself towards caring for creation, we don't seem to be slowing down and consuming that creation. Something has to give there. Who's going to fix that? There were other sons and daughters of God who famously went through wilderness. The Israelites in the Old Testament, after being freed from their slavery, as free people following God, saw kind of crazy, miraculous things. They went around in circles for 40 years because they never really actually trusted God. Every single one of those people who lived in Egypt, minus two people, every single one of those people died in the wilderness. They couldn't do it. They refused to get it. They gave into self-reliance. They gave into pride. They gave into power. And of course, we're not any different. We look at those stories like, oh, if I saw God as like a, as a fire and smoke during the day, surely I would follow him. Not probably you wouldn't because nobody else really did. Very few people did. But Jesus went through the wilderness perfectly. And he does this to lead the way for us. 
Christ has learned what Israel did not. Christ has been obedient where Israel was not. The same can be true for us. The story of Jesus' temptations here is also the story of Jesus presenting himself as the true Israel, as God's finally, God's true obedient son, through whom God's big massive vision, his mission of this whole world being filled with the knowledge of his glory, finally now this obedient son can take this vision and this mission into the world and actually do something about it. And when our hearts change from not following Christ to following Christ, we get united to Jesus in ways that changes us for the better. His obedience becomes ours. So Jesus ends up not only just being a model of of perfectness, of like, wouldn't it be great for us to be able to live this way? He doesn't just become like that impossible bar to reach, but he comes, becomes the way for us to get there, the means for us to live this out. Our life united to his, his life at work in ours. Now, this is really, really good news because unlike Jesus, we always give in. We always give in. Jesus never gave in. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus was tempted his entire life and never gave in. You know how like things build up and you're just like, oh, I just need to do something. And you say like, you shout a curse right out of windows. Like just because you need like, something has to, something has to give. Jesus, that, Jesus never did that. It built up and built up and built up and he never gave in. I can't imagine what that's like. In our wilderness, we hear these same kinds of whispers to us and they're tailored to us. When we're low, we're tempted to rely on ourselves, pick ourselves up again and jump back into the same cycle that spit us out we can live a different way. We don't have to sell off parts of ourselves. We don't have to be left with less. We can be filled with more. And there was a point where Jesus did give himself up. He didn't give up, but he did give himself up. Not on the devil's timeline, not on our timeline, but according to his own purposes. Christ didn't give in on the mountain of temptation, but gave himself up on the Mount of Golgotha, the hill where he was crucified. Now, Jesus never chose a shortcut for pain or suffering of his own so that he could take our pain and suffering with him. He was so closely connected to the Father, he had a joy going through it. Not that the suffering itself was a joy, but the product, the end product, which is us, was a joy. Even sitting here in this pub set in 1972, this was part of the joy that Jesus had set before the cross. That's amazing. And on the mountain of our temptation, what are those whispers that we hear? They're all different for us, but they're all there. But you know, what can the devil like really actually offer? Maybe some power, maybe some glory. Maybe you can be like the best blues guitarist of all time even. But even if you got all your wishes, you've received the world at the cost of what? Your own soul, you're never going to be satisfied. And you certainly won't ever be fulfilled. You won't even be satisfied, let alone being fulfilled. Now maybe you've just realized how much of yourself you have sold off or how, how much we might sell ourselves off every day. Surely there must be a way back. And there is. Because if you're found in God's love and you know him, angels will come as they did for Jesus. But not on the devil's timeline, not even on your timeline, which is really annoying and frustrating, I might have to say, but on God's timeline. And this is what Jesus on the cross accomplished. It wasn't just a potential rescue. It was a real, actual rescue, a real thing that happened and caused real things. In the wilderness, we have real needs. We have real longings, and those are all legitimate, but we try and fill them any way we can because it hurts to have a longing. It hurts to have unmet desires. Jesus offers satisfaction in every area of your life. Now, it's not fulfillment, but it is satisfaction. And that's one thing that the Lord's Supper speaks to that we're going to celebrate in a moment. Simple eating and drinking. Without it, though, we die. Just as simple as that. As goes our soul. 
And if we don't find our nourishment in God, our soul dies. We may not know how emaciated our soul is, but from one needy, hungry soul to others, let's eat and drink and be satisfied. Jesus gives us his gift, even especially in our wilderness. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you have words of love and delight to us. I thank you that we don't need to test it, even though we do. And Lord, when we do, we're sorry that we do. Lord, I thank you that before we do anything, before we prove ourselves, before we mess something up or even do something possibly slightly good, even before all that, you delight in us and who we are. And even when we go through the wilderness and even when we give in, Lord, we thank you that you still show that love to us through your son. I pray that we would rely more on your son and therefore rely more on his people. I pray we would rely more on your word instead of the words that we hear out in culture that kind of seep into us. Lord, I pray that we would really organize our lives around what you say and our lives around your people to be able to know nothing less but you, to know God, to know you and your love and how it connects in our life. And we thank you that you do that, even in our wilderness. We have longings. We have prayers that are unanswered and might stay unanswered. God, won't you come and give us what we need? Amen. A um, question came through. Thanks for who submitted it. It's a great question. It says, I feel like God keeps withholding good things from me. How do I trust um, him when I don't get what I want? It's a great question. Um, I feel like I could ask that probably nearly every day. How do I trust him when I don't get what I want? I think what we see here is Jesus didn't really get what he wanted here in this chapter, or, or even in these, um, these verses. So there's a way that Jesus was practicing self-denial in a way that is modeling for us what self-denial ought to look like. Now, what God, and God never promises to always give us everything we desire, but he does, and this is what I kind of said a few times, I don't know if this is helpful or not. And if it's not, um, whoever wrote that, I would love to chat more about that with you because it's a great question. Difference of fulfillment and satisfaction. Fulfillment is like cup overflowing when you had just one bite too many kind of really good food. That's fulfillment. You can only live in that part like a few times. And the more you do that, the quicker you die. So there's fulfillment there. But then there's also there's satisfaction. You know when you have a meal and you're just like, oh man, that was good. Oh man, I didn't overdo it. I'm proud of myself. I don't know. That doesn't happen to me very often. Normally on this side of things, using a meal as an example. The same thing could be had any other kind of desire. Like, I am lonely. I really want someone to know me. I really want to know somebody in a way that's very deep. And you might think marriage is the answer to that. You might think having a partner is the answer to that. You might think having loads of friends. Maybe all those things can like give you the fulfillment. But I'm, you will never be fulfilled in that way. I'm, I'm sorry, but you won't. Until the new heavens and earth. It's just not going to happen. There will be lonely. And when you feel loneliness in your marriage, everybody who's married does. That's another deep level kind of hurt because you're like, this person should know me. I feel like they don't know me at all. And that hurts even more. So there's a level of fulfillment won't ever happen this side of the new heavens and earth. But satisfaction is possible. And that comes in all sorts of different ways. And depending on um, the particular desires, that can look like different things. Uh, it won't always be met 100% completely, but it will be met in as much as you need it because God knows that better than we do. The more we press into God, this is the kind of crazy thing. The more we learn about God, the more we also learn about ourselves. And the two can't really, I don't think, really be divided from each other. The more we know about ourselves, the more we know about how much God loves us and needs to meet us. 
I don't know if that's helpful or like a way to think about it. I just know it's very difficult, and that is the Christian life, actually. That question is the Christian life. And we'll probably be having those questions till the day we die and see Jesus face to face. So keep asking those questions. Um, keep having those desires. Don't try and kill those desires. Um, but know that um, our needs will be met um, through what Jesus can give us. Which, even as I say that, sounds like a pat answer, maybe a bit of like a, oh, that's very easy for you to say up there. Um, and it is very easy for me to say. And it's very difficult for me to live out. And I think that's maybe true for every Christian. So on that note, thinking of, on that note of a lack of fulfillment, but hopefully satisfaction, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And then we do this when we sing, but we're going to do it um, all together today. This is supposed to, sell, it's supposed to represent a loaf of bread. It's supposed to represent a bottle of wine. Now, even this itself is not a real meal although it's the symbol of a spiritual meal. Uh, and we're, what we're about to do is we're about to celebrate something where for everyone who finds their satisfaction in Jesus, if that's not you, then this is basically it's a saying you do, so please don't do something that you wouldn't actually believe in. Um, and that's totally fine for that to be the deal. The normal process, actually, in following Jesus is you follow Jesus, you get baptized, and you're able to um, celebrate communion together. And if you have questions on any of those things, I would love to talk with you. I'm going to pray. Um, and then we'll celebrate this together. But to just explain again what we're doing, the wafer is supposed to represent bread. Now, the bread represents Jesus' body, and the juice is supposed to represent wine. The wine represents Jesus' blood, both of which he spilled on the cross, that we might be able to be filled even when we're going through our kind of barren wildernesses. So let me pray. God, we thank you that you satisfy us when we need it in ways uh, and the time that we need it. We pray that we would trust you more in our wilderness, especially when we don't feel like we're getting what we need from you. Lord, I pray that would lead us to, to crying out, to praying more, and to asking you to, to come through with you being the good God that you are. And I pray even just this morning, uh, let our eating and drinking root us firmly in your care and your love in all the circumstances we come through. We pray and eat and drink in the name of Jesus. Amen. So for all those who are in Jesus, you take the um, wafer. Eat knowing that Jesus, Jesus satisfies all our hunger pains. And even if we don't know how he does, there is a trust there to know that he does. And we do the same with drinking, knowing that he satisfies our thirst for life. And let's all stand and sing together as we're